There's a new and better way to interact with podcasts. The Clever Podcast app allows you to bookmark, highlight your favorite quotes, and buy recommended products all in one place. You can listen to any public podcast, but we'll have exclusive Haas podcast content only available in our Clever app. So sign up for Clever today at clever.fm and do more than listen. You're listening to the One Haas Podcast. I am honored and excited to introduce y'all to Paul Rice, the CEO and founder of Fair Trade USA, who has spent his career making a huge difference in the lives of farmers and growers and calls on all of us to be more conscious consumers. Just preparing for this interview has caused me to think differently about my own consumption. So thank you so much for coming and welcome, Paul. Oh, thanks, Bree. I'm so happy to be here. So I'm really curious to just begin with, what is your origin story pre-Nicaragua? We'll talk about you going to Nicaragua and what that experience was like for you, but I haven't heard a lot about that part, so I'm really curious. Well, I was raised by a single mom, and we didn't have much money growing up, so I started exercising my entrepreneurial spirit at a young age, mowing lawns and saving up, and I bought a house when I was 16, became a landlord. and Wow. Went off to Yale to kind of get a change of scenery from Austin and Dallas, Texas, where I grew up. And at Yale, I got interested in international development and poverty and social justice and decided basically halfway through that that's what I wanted to spend my life doing. Was there something specific there that happened? Uh, Nelson Mandela was in jail and apartheid was on everyone's mind. And I kind of got swept up into a lot of social justice work there on campus. And I was reading books about U.S. uh, foreign policy and how we've intervened in country after country and just started to feel a sense of indignation about that and also started to learn about poverty and hunger and how different countries were approaching that. And I started to get interested in agricultural economics and in co-ops as a way to get farmers together to start a journey out of poverty. And that kind of led me to decide toward the end of college that I wanted to uh, go do some field work and get some hands-on experience with farmers. So I I bought a one-way ticket to Nicaragua (laughs) in the summer of 83 and went off to um, work with farmers. Thought I'd stay for a year or two and ended up staying for 11 years. 11 years. Wow. And was it almost a renewable contract for you? Like, oh, it's been a year. I I want to keep staying. Or did you know pretty quickly? (laughs) No, no, no. It was pretty much. It was like the one-year plan and then the two-year plan. And then I got married to a local gal and we had our son there and about halfway through that time, I ended up doing some really uh, cool, innovative work, and that kept me there for a while longer, too. So you thought you were interviewing Paul today, but actually, <laughs> you're, you're interviewing Pablo. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I think my Spanish name was Berta for a while. So. Berta, nice. <laughs> and so tell me the origin story then of Fair Trade USA and how that grew from your experience working with those farmers in Nicaragua. Yeah, thanks. So Most of the early years in Nicaragua, I spent working on various international development aid-funded projects, right? So we've got this multi-billion dollar international development industry, right, with USAID and other bilateral and multilateral agencies and great NGOs in the space trying to alleviate poverty. And the driving force of that is, is not the market, it's aid, And so I worked on a lot of really well-intentioned projects that were funded by international aid. And I'll tell you, I got really disillusioned with it. It wasn't Mm. really very effective in my experience at helping farmers develop their own capacity to solve their own problems and helping them to think about markets 
And so I ended up kind of stepping out of that and pivoting to market-based approaches. I, I, I heard about fair trade by accident. It was up and running in Europe. And their whole philosophy was trade, not aid. Hmm. And it was just a simple idea. If we pay right. for them a fair price for their harvest, then they can improve their own lives without having to depend on government intervention or international aid. Right. So um, in the summer of 1990, I started Nicaragua's first fair trade co-op. I led the co-op for four years. We organized 3,000 families. By the fourth year, we were exporting over 100 containers of coffee a year. These were all coffee farmers. Wow. We were able to get farmers an extraordinarily higher price for their product, which allowed them to keep kids in school and bring clean drinking water into their villages and invest in health and women's empowerment and reforestation and all this cool stuff. Right. Thanks to a market-based approach. And that that changed my life and it changed my view on capitalism and turned me from an anti-capitalist into uh, what some call a social capitalist and mm-hmm. and a believer that the market while it can certainly victimize smallholders around the world, it can also be an incredible force for empowerment and for well-being for uh, marginalized families. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Thank you. I I love this story because I think it's a nice pivot for you personally, but also changing people's lives as well. I've always been curious about one part, which is that you in kind of getting fair prices, there was a cutting out in some ways of a middleman. Is that correct? Am I understanding that right? Exactly. Yeah. Smallholders with one acre of land, they're only producing a few sacks of coffee a year. So they're never going to be able to export directly, right? So they typically sell at the farm gate to a local middleman who pays pennies on the pound. Mm -hmm. And they're really victimized by virtue of their lack of direct market access and their lack of market information. But of course, if they band together, like we did, 3,000 families, then they can create economies of scale, they can add value to the product, they can go direct to international markets and capture all of that value that other people historically have been capturing. And what is the hardest part about getting them to start collaborating and working together and get to those economies of scale? What was the most challenging part of that? Honestly, the biggest barrier was the barrier of disbelief, the barrier Mm -hmm. of self-identity. Our farmers knew that they could wear the hat of farmer, but they never imagined themselves wearing the hat of exporter mm-hmm. or business owner. Right. So the very first year, we only got 20 families mm-hmm. to make the leap and say, okay, we're going to deliver 10 sacks of coffee each. We'll export one container and we'll see what happens. Right. And so those 10 pioneers, those visionaries who thought of themselves, not just as farmers, but maybe also as international exporters, Right. It proved the point. And then the second year, we had a couple hundred families. And the third year, we had a thousand families and the whole thing snowballed. It was the power of a positive example. But someone had to take the leap, the leap of Mm -hmm. thinking of themselves as more than just a poor farmer victim of the market. And what kind of education or additional resources did they need as time went on, as more families joined, as more people had to start getting into that mindset and actually living that out in terms of their business practices? What kind of education did they need and how did you all help provide? Well, one big thing was training in how to run and participate in a cooperative. A co-op is, it's kind of like a shareholder situation. I mean, the members of the co-op are co-owners of the co-op. They elect leadership. They elect board of directors. The board of directors hires professional management. There's just a whole organizational framework that Mm. typically farmers around the world aren't familiar with. And so we did a lot of training around that, how farmers could hold their managers accountable to a level of transparency around the numbers, 
We also did a lot of training around product quality because what we discovered on the market side very early on was that consumers were not going to buy our coffee if it sucked just because mm-hmm. we were promising to help farmers, right? I mean, right, right. People like us, people who you might call conscious consumers who are looking for products that are responsible and sustainable, we want quality, right? Mm-hmm. We're yeah. not going to buy coffee if it doesn't taste good, right? And so we had to train the farmers in how to add value to the product by focusing on product quality so that it was a true fair trade, not only for the farmer in terms of the price, right. but also for the consumer in terms of getting to enjoy a delightful product. Okay. And do you then have to partner in any way with other organizations in terms of like, this has to be organic or we have to be doing this sustainably in some way? Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Partnerships has been very much the secret sauce of the fair trade journey because there are so many great groups out there that focus on farmer training or that focus on sustainable agriculture. And so we've we've formed strong alliances both when I was in Nicaragua and now today at Fair Trade USA, uh, strong alliances with allied organizations who are really excited about our model of change and who see the market leverage that we've been able to create as a way to advance a holistic model of sustainability. I mean, that's incredible just to hear that there's already so many partnerships you have in sustainability. But I imagine there's also a whole nother branch of convincing, which is the businesses who have now said, oh, I think... I care about buying things that are fair trade and not just individual consumers, but also these larger businesses who had to make that pivot. What was that like to um, convince, to teach, educate? So the businesses that join fair trade do so in some cases because they're led by values or or purpose-driven leaders. Mm Mm-hmm. And in some cases, because they see a stronger value proposition in fair trade supply chains, either because there's less reputational risk, right? Because Mm -hmm. a fair trade supply chain, a fair trade co-op or a fair trade farm or factory has to meet a rigorous 300-point checklist of social, environmental, and labor criteria. So it means you're less likely to have a child labor scandal in a fair trade supply chain. So companies join fair trade to mitigate reputational risk. They join fair trade because it is one way to make their supply chain more reliable and resilient. And then in an age where consumers are increasingly asking, where does my food come from? Fair trade and things like it give companies a way to answer that question and to say this product not only is high quality or tastes great, but it also brings these environmental and social benefits to the world. So it's something that you can feel proud about. And which companies are you most excited or proud of having brought on to care about this as a mission? Well, before I answer that, maybe I'll give the from Nicaragua to here story. Yes. Because after leading this co-op in Nicaragua for four years, I realized that my calling wasn't to stay. Hmm. My calling wasn't to continue being Pablo. My calling was to come back and become Paul again and see if I could take the European fair trade model and plant that seed in the U.S. And so I came back in 94. I barely spoke English at that point. (laughs) And so I enrolled in the Haas School of Business because I wanted to get the tools to launch fair trade here. I think that's the only reason why Haas led me in, because I had a Mm. really clear, bright sense of what I wanted to do with the degree. And to their credit, they thought, okay, this is cool. Let's see if we can help him along his way. And so, you know, I wrote the business plan for Fair Trade USA in John Freeman's entrepreneurship class, second year MBA. And 
took wow. me years to raise startup capital. And then I launched Fairtrade USA in 1998, which is the, the first Fairtrade certification and the leading Fairtrade certification seal here in the US market. So I've been doing that for 22 years. It's been a long journey. I kept thinking for years I would go back to Nicaragua, back to the mountains where I belong. But what I have loved about leading this organization is the learning journey and really being a part of the rise of what some call conscious capitalism, where business leaders are overcoming this old school trade-off mentality that either you're profitable or you're sustainable, but you're not both. Right. To a new way of thinking where we are seeing that sustainability and responsibility are actually drivers of success for the firm. And I just feel really blessed to be a part of that rising tide of business with purpose or stakeholder capitalism and call it what you will, there is clearly a macro shift and it's not going to happen in years. It's going to happen over decades, but that's all right. Like I feel like we have ridden that wave and also helped contribute to its momentum. So Fairtrade USA is a certifier. We developed a standard that defines what is fair trade, and then we audit and certify farms and factories against that standard. We work with 1,400 brands and retailers. We work with 1.6 million farmers and workers around the world, mostly in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but we just recently started certifying farms here in the U.S. too. And so you asked me, like, what are some of the cool companies we work with major multinational companies. We work with Walmart. We work with Costco. We work with Kroger and Safeway and Patagonia, PepsiCo. We work with big companies. And then we work with smaller local companies like Equator Coffee out of Marin or some of the cool small upstart brands around the country who see in impact sourcing, as it's becoming known, a way to create shared value for uh, not only farmers and workers in the supply chain, but also consumers and shareholders as well. Thank you for taking us back to Haas too, because I'm also curious. It sounds like it was a big part of you writing your business plan and all of that. Are there resources or things that you really enjoyed having while you were at Haas as well that helped? Going to Haas changed my life. I knew who I was already and I knew what I wanted to do. So it wasn't about finding myself. It was about finding community mm -hmm. and getting tools in order to be able to realize my dream. And Haas was already very much committed to entrepreneurship and creativity and innovation. There was less of a social entrepreneurship program. There was less of a nonprofit program in 1995 than there is today. And so one of the things that I love so much about this community is that it has evolved and really taken on a leadership role, I would say, across business schools around the country and around the world in terms of elevating business with purpose and combining not just innovation, but social innovation, right? right? And that's what, if you look at your class and like in the last decade, you see a higher and higher percentage of Haas students and alums talking about social purpose, talking about using the knowledge and the skills and the networks that they're developing at Haas to make the world better, not just to create wealth for shareholders, but to make the world better in the process. And I love that. I love right. that about our community. Yeah, something I definitely love too. That's why I went to Haas. And it's an interesting thing that's not typically what you see in business schools, maybe of this huge care of social purpose. But it sounds like generally, even across businesses, as you're saying, there is more focus on at least having socially conscious consumers. And so maybe businesses need to adjust to that as they go forward. How many or what percentage of consumers would you estimate to be those conscious consumers who are making choices based on those things? Yeah, it's a great question. It depends on whose data you believe. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So some studies identify around 20 to 25% of 
U.S. general population that are either on a regular or occasional basis choosing products that speak to their social or environmental concerns and values. Other studies place that number more at 50 to 60 percent. Hmm. When we look at fair trade consumer awareness, our awareness numbers are up to 63 percent. So when you show wow. people the fair trade certified label, 63 percent can actually give an accurate description Say they send it and can give an accurate description of what it means. About half of them, so about 30, a little over 30% say that they regularly buy fair trade products. Those numbers may not be spot on accurate, but 30% of general population, that's 100 million people. And even if it's only half that, to think that 50 million people on a regular basis are looking for that fair trade seal and voting with their dollars Mm -hmm. for poverty alleviation around the world, that's pretty exciting. And like I said, I think about social change, not in terms of years, but in terms of decades. We're definitely playing the long game. Right. Yep. So I'm super excited. I'm super excited about where the business community is evolving and, and our role in that. Say that I am a business and I'm like, oh, I really want to make sure that I'm doing things the right way. I want a fair trade certification. I want to think about my, you know, how I source and my labor practices. Can you walk me through a company navigating that and what that looks like? Maybe even some of the smaller startups that you work with. How does that work? Yeah. So It sometimes varies by category. We started here in the U.S. certifying coffee, and coffee to this day is still about 40% of all fair trade certified products in the U.S., but we quickly expanded to tea and chocolate and sugar and then 20 different kinds of fresh fruits and vegetables from bananas to asparagus and so on. Then we launched fair trade apparel and furniture, so we're working with Patagonia and J. Crew, and we're working with Pottery Barn and Target on factory-grown goods. We launched fisheries a few years ago, Hmm. and we're about to launch Fair Trade Dairy with Chobani. So uh, Chobani is going to launch wow. Fair Trade Yogurt actually this month. First Fair Trade Dairy. Exciting. Product. I know. I know. <laughs> it's awesome. Let's take Chobani as a great example. So they had their supply chain. They already had the dairies that are in their supply chain. They came to us and right. said, look, they said, we know that farm workers in our supply chain are at risk. We know that there are bad labor practices at times. We know that there are health and safety issues that need to be addressed. We know that there are wages and living standard issues that need to be addressed. And the ag sector is exempt from a lot of U.S. labor laws. And so often just requiring farm owners to obey the law isn't enough to really lift farm workers out of poverty. So Chobani came to Mm -hmm. us and said, could we implement a third-party voluntary system in our supply chain, i.e. fair trade, that would raise the level of both social and labor and environmental practices. So we said, hell yeah. So we put boots on the ground. We visited their farms. We talked to the farm workers. We talked to the farm owners. We talked to activists. We talked to retailers. We crowdsourced knowledge from all the stakeholders that touch this product to really understand what the fair trade standard should address beyond the core boilerplate standard that we've implemented elsewhere. And so that allowed us to tailor the standard to the specific situation in the dairy industry. And then we launched auditing and certification, and we've already certified a bunch of their farms, and we'll be certifying the rest of Chobani's farms over the next two years. So they're going 100% fair trade. Wow. And so really, it's about not asking them to switch suppliers from a bad mm-hmm. supplier to a good supplier, but rather working with them with their existing supply chain to create greater transparency, greater accountability to social and labor conditions, and then rewarding them. And here's the secret sauce of fair trade. Mm-hmm. We require that brands and retailers pay more money back to the farm owner or the factory owner. We're not saying be more sustainable, y'all, and the cost of that is your problem. That's not what we're saying. We're saying right. be more sustainable, treat your workers right, 
and take care of your environment. And the consumer is going to help pay for that, right? Through the retailers. The retailers on average pay about a 5% premium back to the farm or factory. That gets managed by the workers. They invested in community projects. And that is what really drives the growth of the fair trade model. The fact that we're actually the only certification out there that makes sure that the certified farms and factories that we work with get more money. Yeah, I guess that keeps them coming been wanting to make these changes, or at least able to, I suppose, because I don't imagine that people want to treat others badly in their processes, but they're worried about other things in that. I'm curious about your personal values, how you would describe them and how it relates to what you do in your work. I'm a lifelong social justice warrior. (laughs) Yeah. And I read your LinkedIn bio. I know you're all about empathy. That's where it starts for me. It starts with empathy. My mama grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, and her dad lost his farm in the Great Depression. I grew up hearing those stories. And I've just always felt a deep sense of empathy and sympathy for farming folk and the incredible struggle that they have to undertake every day against market forces and bad weather and you name it. It's not easy being a farmer out there. So my mission and calling kind of is anchored in in that feeling of deep empathy for uh, all those hardworking folks around the world. Yeah, those people who every day get up to feed the rest of us, <laughs> feed right. the rest of the world and That's make sure right. that we can keep sustaining and living. So yeah. yeah, big shout out to farmers and people who devote their lives to bringing not only something that helps us live every day, but bring us joy a lot of times in our lives. So is there anything that you would want me to ask you, Paul, that you haven't talked about yet? For 22 years, we have been serving farmers and workers, primarily in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So 100% of the beneficiaries of our work on the other side of the world, and for whom we're building bridges of opportunity, are people of color. And because we were focused overseas, we never really looked at the situation in our own country until just a couple of years ago when Whole Foods and Costco and a couple other partners said, hey, what about farmers and farm workers here in the U.S.? Right. And so we started a journey of looking at issues of poverty and race in this country a few years ago, which accelerated after George Floyd was killed last year. And so we have started to look at how we can do more for the farming and working community here in the United States, in particular, looking at Black-owned farms. So 100 Mm -hmm. years ago, there were over 2 million Black farm owners in the United States. Today, there are only 52,000 left. And so we are looking at how we can ally with other organizations that are working with black farmers. And I dare say many of our retail partners are kind of eager to figure out how they can take talk to action and figure Mm -hmm. out how they can support black owned farming. So that's something that we're very curious about. And then obviously diversity, equity and inclusion is something that we're thinking a lot within Fairtrade USA. We have a large Latino and Asian workforce that mirrors in part the constituents that we serve overseas, but it doesn't necessarily mirror the society in which we're based. And so that's Mm -hmm. something we're talking about and trying to have more open, harder conversations about who we want to be and how we practice what we preach. That's Amazing to hear. And I had no idea about the huge loss of the number of Black farm owners over time. Do you have any historical context for what happened over those hundred years? A lot of it was land theft, pushing people off land because they didn't have the right kind of title. So a lot of it was legal and then market forces as well. We're just learning. But I'm really humbled to just start to get to meet 
some of the amazing activists that live in this space and that have been Mm -hmm. championing this cause for years, for decades. So, you know, if ever there was an opportunity for us to show up as allies, this is it. Because they're a great folk doing great work in this space. Yeah. And I I love how at Berkeley, there's a huge focus also on food right now, generally. And so I hope that, and I think that a lot of the emphasis of thinking about diversity, inclusion, who are we serving in our communities, who gets access to healthy foods, who gets access to foods that are produced in a sustainable way is something that we care about a lot and are trying to work on. Yeah. True that. Yeah. Paul, it's such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. And learning about your organization. And I wonder... Two things. First, if you were not doing this, if you were not doing Fair Trade USA, what do you think you would be doing? Would you be back in Nicaragua? What would you do? Oh, I'd totally be back in Nicaragua. Yeah. I mean, I, I got to <laughs> go back to be at Pablo sometime, right? I just, <laughs> I'm just a little delayed in my mission. But no, I still have strong roots in Nicaragua and usually go back every year. For me, Having worked with farmers there since the early 80s and into the 90s kind of makes me a a walking, talking, longitudinal study of the effectiveness of fair trade because the people that I organized back in the 80s and 90s, they are now the grandparents of kids who are getting college degrees and becoming leaders in the community and totally transforming their lives. And fair trade isn't the whole story, but fair trade is an important part of that story of giving girls and women in particular in these rural communities a chance to dream and see their dreams come true as leaders in the community, right. and as professionals, and to see farming kids that want to be something else become something else. Right. So I love it. And someday I'll go back. But for now, I'm, I'm really <laughs> happy here in Berkeley. I mean, this is going to sound like a commercial for Haas, but I don't care. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> For any listeners that are thinking about coming to Haas, if you care about this intersection of business and social change, this is the place for you because of the curriculum and because of the community. There's no better community that I know of. I get to speak at business schools all the time that have social entrepreneurship programs and this and that, but Berkeley Haas is pretty unique and I'm very proud, very proud of our community. I feel the exact same way. For my last question, it's kind of a call to action question. What would you ask us to do? What can we do in the space right now? And what can we continue to do in the future? Well, of course, you got to go out and look for that fair trade label now on coffee and <laughs> t-shirts yes. and other stuff. Look for the label and buy the product because you can change the world one cup of coffee at a time. That's my first call to action. I think the bigger call to action for me is wherever you sit, wherever you work, whether you're inside a big company or starting something of your own. The next 10 years, I believe, are going to be all about really manifesting and proving the business case for social responsibility, for sustainability, what Michael Porter calls shared value, right? This notion that we're moving past the zero sum or trade-off mentality of the past to really engineering business models that serve society as well as shareholders. And I think we are all blessed to live in a time where what we do makes a difference. So that's my call to action. Be bold, be courageous, seize this moment and find any and all creative ways to bring purpose into business. Thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. And yeah, listeners, any ways that we can to bring purpose, to bring change, to make this world better for all of us into business, do what you can. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next time. 
Thank you, Bree. You're amazing. So glad to be here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, just remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also love it if you could give us a five-star rating and review. And you can check out more of our content on our website, haaspodcast.org. And that's podcast with an S at the end, where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. Go Bears!